Hello and welcome to the latest of our fortnightly funds fan podcasts brought to you by Interactive Investor in conjunction with Money Observer and MoneyWise magazines. I'm Faith Glasgow, I'm the editor of Money Observer and with me today are Kyle Caldwell who is the deputy editor at Money Observer and Mike Fox head of sustainable investment at Royal London. We'll also be joined later by Interactive's fund analyst, Theodore Diloff. As usual, we start off with the latest news and developments that concern fund investors. It has been a bit slow on the news front of late, but Kyle, there was some relief for some property fund investors. Yes, the first of several open-ends of property funds that put suspensions in place in March has started trading again, which is the BMO Property Growth and Income Fund. Just to put it into context, a fund suspension is when a fund firm bars investors from accessing their cash, which means that daily dealing is suspended. Fund suspensions overall are rare and only tend to happen for funds that invest in illiquid investments, such as property and unlisted stocks, with the LF Woodford Equity Income Funds being an example of the latter last June. In the case of property funds, the reason why fund suspensions have been in place since March is because independent property valuers have been struggling to provide accurate and reliable valuations for the properties in the fund's portfolios following the market sell-off and also due to economic uncertainty. And open-ends of property funds, um, some examples of those that have had suspended include those from Columbia Threadneedle, uh, Legal and General, Aberdeen Standard Investments and Janus Henderson. The BMO Property Growth and Income Fund has reopened before all the others, largely due to having a much lower exposure to direct property, which accounts for 30% of the portfolio. The remaining 70% is held in property shares, which are obviously very much more liquid than bricks and mortar. So it continues to be a challenging time for property funds, but on a more positive note, other fund sectors have posted some strong returns in in recent months. Kyle, you crunched the numbers. What did you find out? I had a look at fund performance since the 23rd of March, which, although it did not feel it at the time, was the market bottom following the coronavirus market sell-off. And since then, the markets have been in recovery mode pretty much across the board. Various sectors have been uh, clawing back losses. And in 12 sectors from the 23rd of March to the 15th of June have notched up returns of 20% plus. And the top three sectors over that period all invest in smaller companies. And they are the UK smaller companies sector, the North American smaller companies sector, and the European smaller companies sector. Obviously, it should be pointed out that um, all these three sectors were hit very hard during the sell-off, primarily due to the fact that they invest in smaller companies, which are perceived to be riskier than uh, larger businesses. So this was a big bounce back, really. Another interesting element to come out of your research was that several equity sectors have actually shown strength both on the way down and also in recovery. So effectively, they limited losses during the sell-off and also managed to lead the pack on the way out as markets have recovered. Yes, that's correct, Faith. Three of the four sectors that performed well in both the falling and rising market conditions are uh, the ones that people would have expected to see. Funds that specialise in technology, US funds, and funds that invest globally. But the, the fourth sector, which I, I thought was a bit more of a surprise, was the uh, was Japanese smaller companies. One thing to point out is that there are only a small number of funds in the sector, but uh, nonetheless, they um, performed very well um, in both the um, falling market and the, 
the rising market since 23rd of March. To be honest, I can't quite put my finger on why that would be. I mean, obviously, the, the, the Japanese market compared to other markets looks relatively cheap. Aside from that, I don't quite um, know why that trend has played out. The data shows that that, that has been a trend. I guess when you take into account the falls during the market sell-off, the vast majority of fund investors will still be sitting on a, a loss, though. Yes, that's right. I mean, if, if you're an unlucky investor in terms of buying on the 21st of February, which marked the start of the coronavirus sell-off, and you um, you know you didn't panic and you just decided, I'll, I'll keep faith in the funds. Yes, if you retain the holding all the way through from the 21st of February to the 15th of June, only nine fund sectors out of a total of 39 have produced a positive return. So the likelihood is that you will still be sitting on a on a paper loss. And in some cases, it'd be quite large. In terms of the winners, the top three sector performers over that time period are UK gilts. The average fund is up 6%, followed by UK index-linked gilt funds, which are up 5.8%. And then in third place is um, the technology and telecommunications sector, where the average fund is up 3%. Well, it's interesting stuff. Thank you very much, Kyle. Now, one of the ways in which Money Observer has set out to help its readership over the decades has been through the annual fund awards. The awards use performance data for each of the past three years to identify the most consistent top performers. And for this year, those past three years run up to the 31st of March. This year, we had a roll of honour comprising 42 winners and highly commended awards across 15 groups, including the UK, global and regional categories in, in equities, as well as mixed asset, bonds, volatility managed and uh, a specialist ethical section. But one of the most remarkable things about the 2020 awards has been the extent to which the growing interest in ethical and sustainable investing has carried through into performance. For many years now, there has been, as I've just mentioned, a dedicated ethical section, but in 2020, sustainable funds scooped a full 25% of the remaining 36 mainstream awards. So an extra nine awards that were not specifically for um, dedicated ethical companies. Royal London led the way in this with five awards overall, including three mainstream ones. And the fund manager whose name is all over them like a rash is Mike Fox, head of sustainable investment at Royal London. Mike, it's great to have you on the show and congratulations on your wins. Thank you very Um, much. Not at all. You were involved with four out of the five winners, Sustainable Leaders, Royal London's Sustainable Leaders for UK Growth, Sustainable Diversified for Lower Risk Mixed Asset, and two wins for Royal London Sustainable World uh, in the Higher Risk Mixed Asset Group and the Ethical Mixed Asset Group. So I'm wondering, could you first tell us something about the approach you've developed in running this stable of funds. What are you avoiding and what are you looking for in the companies you invest in? So really, when we're looking at companies and thinking about investing, uh, we, we really look at every opportunity and put it, put it either in bucket A or bucket B. And bucket A would be companies that provide solutions to environmental and social issues. And they would be companies with good ESG standards. Uh, bucket B would be the opposite. They'd be companies that create social and environmental issues and they have poor ESG standards. So really the whole premise of sustainable investing 
is based on the simple argument that solutions are good ESG, bucket A will outperform problems and bad ESG, bucket B. And and really that common sense approach underpins all that we do. So we we do choose the company that's curing lung cancer with next generation medicines versus, you know, the company that might cause lung cancer through tobacco products. And we do choose companies that are taking carbon out of the atmosphere by investing in renewables rather than companies that are putting carbon into the atmosphere. So, you know, I think that gives you a strong indication of what we're what we prefer and what we avoid. How do you balance up between the different factors? I mean, it's never a one or two dimensional decision making process, I'm sure. So what happens if you've got a company that's doing very good things, but where governance isn't perhaps what you all that you might wish to see? Yeah, it's just a good question. I mean, really, no company we invest in is perfect. And, you know, you can think about it in the same way that you might assess something by listing the positives and listing the negatives and then taking a view as to which outweighs the other. We do have certain lines in the sand. There are certain things around corporate governance that we wouldn't accept, even if, for example, the products and services of the company were hugely socially beneficial because we think bad governance means that the business won't be running the interests of investors. But, you know, most of the time you can find a way through. So you do find companies that maybe their corporate governance is a little bit worse than you want. But not egregiously so, um, but they do have a very strong social purpose to them. And we would, on that basis, typically invest and then engage with the company to try and explain why we think a different corporate governance structure would be suitable. But you do hit on a really important point. It's hard to find the purity in sustainable investing. It's hard to find a company that doesn't do anything that you know would not be considered uh, best practice. So it's important you have to have this ledger of positives and negatives and then take a rounded view. Mike, could you talk through the difference between the different funds that you run? Um, I assume that there'll be quite an overlap in terms of similar holdings across some of the funds? Yes, that's correct. I mean, the, there's two points of difference. One is the asset allocation. We have a range of funds that go from 100% equity to 100% fixed income, then with mixed asset funds in the middle. So the idea there is, you know, depending on your risk requirement, your income requirement, your capital growth requirements, you know, you can select which fund will meet that best. The other point of difference is geographical exposure. Uh, Sustainable Leaders is a UK orientated fund. Sustainable world has more global exposure. After that, it really is about getting as much commonality across the funds as possible. If an investment is a good idea for one fund, you know, absent those asset allocation and geographical uh, issues that I mentioned, uh, really you want it across all the funds. So there are differences, but the principle is very much to try and get as much commonality as possible. You mentioned business of active engagement with companies that you're holding in your portfolios, but how how important is that? How involved do you get with them in getting them to try and clean their act up? It is different for a sustainable fund than it is for a broad engagement. So because we have a hurdle rate initially in terms of what we expect of the companies we invest in, we do find that many big issues we just basically duck. For example, climate change is perhaps one of the biggest engagement topics at the moment. Um, But if you're like us and we don't invest in any oil, oil, gas or coal mining companies, you're effectively saying that they don't pass our sustainable test, therefore we won't invest. So there's almost kind of nothing to engage on in that respect. Whereas Mm. 
you know, a broad fund, you would expect exposure to those areas. So engagement would be important. I think really the best way I can describe it for a sustainable fund is, is kind of making good better. Um, even when a company does pass that hurdle rate, there are always issues to engage on. And as companies evolve, issues come about. So, you know, if you think about the technology sector, for example, um, that's become much more data orientated in the last few years. Um, and the whole issue around data privacy, use of data, are issues that 10 years ago we didn't really have to think about. So, you know, even though we might argue that a certain technology company has products and services that are socially beneficial, you know, we do need to engage with them to understand how they're thinking about data, how they're using data, and making sure that on those issues that they well. Returning to the, the fund awards, I would argue that perhaps the most, the most outstanding achievement for Royal London is, is the win for Royal London Sustainable Leaders in the all-important UK growth category, which is you know very much the focus or has historically been very much the focus of UK investors. The fund was one of only a handful of UK all company funds to actually achieve a positive return over the year to the 31st of March. What kind of factors played in its favour over that period? So it starts with what we do invest in and what we don't invest in. So really, when you think about what are the bedrock sectors of a sustainable fund, you, you know, we are trying to find companies with products and services that have social or environmental benefits to them. So we tend to be very interested in healthcare, technology, engineering, chemistry, the areas that um, you know offer a long-term innovation. And those sectors have done extremely well. I mean, particularly healthcare and technology through the COVID crisis. Um, you know, they are two industries whose inherent value has increased because of what's happened. Um, and that's quite remarkable, bearing in mind the number of industries you know, who are fundamentally impaired by what has happened. So that's been a big benefit. But then on what we don't invest in as well, I mean, oil, you know, the headlines about the oil price going negative and, and all these other kinds of issues. But, you know, commodities, for example, are seen to be unfavourable in the more challenging economic environments. And, you know, we don't invest in those for different reasons. You know, we don't invest in them because we do think that they, um, their businesses and more a contributor to environmental problems than the, than the solver of them. So, you know, you start off with that asset split in terms of sectors. I think that gives you a strong indication. And then within that, we run an investment process that we think over time can find the best opportunities within the areas that we are interested in. So you layer it up. You know, I do think what's happened in the last 12 weeks you know, has made the case for sustainable investing being a core solution more compelling. This has been a real test of the ability of strategies to outperform in more difficult environments, you know, accepting that prior to this, we really had a 10-year bull market. You know, it's like the saying, isn't it? You know, don't mistake a bull market for brains. You know, it's like the environment when it's good is favourable to everybody, but when it becomes more difficult, that's often when some differentiation occurs. So it's been a really good stress test of a sustainable strategy and, you know, the sector allocation and the ability to add value within it, the reasons why we've managed to do what we've done. So so you would say really that likelihood is that the advantages that powered this fund in particular and no doubt the others through the last year or so are going to be still very relevant in the in the post-COVID new normal 
existence that we're sort of moving into. So we get asked, you know, is it a fad? I mean, when I started doing this in 2003 with sustainable leaders, so yeah, I don't think it's a fad in, in that sense. My answer to that is, you know, is it a fad that well-managed, socially and environmentally useful companies are going to be good investments? And when you look at it in that context, you know, I think the answer is clearly no. I mean, you know, as I talked about bucket A and bucket B, um, solution versus problems, good ESG versus bad ESG. Solutions and good ESG will, I think, over the long term, perform better than problems and bad ESG. And I think that's why it has longevity. What you've had in the last 12 weeks is just a really good manifestation of that, something that people can visibly see in terms of how that kind of segmenting of investment opportunities has benefited um, investors in the funds. More generally, the big question for many investors is likely to be whether sustainability is a core investment principle is itself sustainable. Mike, what's the evidence that companies with strong ESG underpinnings also do better in the stock market generally? And also, importantly, are more robust than other companies when times get tough. Certainly, there's a lot of academic evidence. There's a lot of back-tested evidence. Um, there's no shortage of studies that make the case that good ESG versus bad ESG. Um, you know, some of those studies have been done looking at passive funds with an ESG tilt versus just traditional passive funds. You can see through that that there has been a benefit. Equally, in the active management space, all the funds that we manage sit in mainstream product categories. We don't sit in a separate bucket where, you know, we're just trying to outperform other sustainable funds. So I think, you know, you can see the evidence through that, that there does seem to be, over long time periods, um, consistently sustainable funds outperforming non-sustainable funds. For best or for worse, I work in the most transparent industry there is. Every day I get a prize for the funds, which tells me whether I've done well, whether I've done badly, or or, or somewhere in the middle. And, and those prices accumulate over time. They're published. They're visible. You know. So ultimately, I would say that you know, look at the long-term track records of the funds, not just our funds, but all funds, whether they're sustainable or not, as an indication. And then also, there is plenty of academic evidence out there. Just one last thought, Mike. Given what you said, could you envisage a day when the, the label sustainable for a company's practices is actually really in danger of becoming redundant because sustainability is actually adopted by everybody? It's become the norm. Yes. You know, I'm probably out of job at some point in the future. There's probably always been an element of working in this space you know, a purpose that you've, you know, if you work in sustainable investing, you do feel that these things are important. Sustainable considerations are important, not just societally, but in terms of investment returns. And if the premise is that you're going to get a better investment outcome by integrating sustainability, then, you know, it's quite compelling logic for everybody doing it in the end. Mm. Um, and if everybody does it, you know, and everybody considers sustainability in their investment processes, I think that's a, that is a wonderful thing. That is night and day from where I came into the industry when it was explained to me that these considerations had no relevance in, in an investment context. So ultimately, if all funds become sustainable funds, if all investors become sustainable investors, I think the world will be a better place for that. You know, I'll need to go off and find something else to do. Um, I think <laughs> we're some way from that. I don't worry about that on a one to two year view, you know, on a 10 to 15 year view. I think it's a really interesting question. Well, it's fascinating stuff. It just underscores how far we've come in the last 15 or 20 years, I think, 
what you're saying. Thank you very much anyway, Mike, for joining us. Finally, on today's podcast, we welcome back Theodore Diloff of Interactive Investor, who has chosen another Super 60 fund from II's list of high quality recommended funds to tell us about. Theo, what, what do you have for us today? My pick for this week is the Castlefield UK Buffetology Fund. This fund was launched in 2011 by its manager, Keith Ashworth-Lord, with the objective of outperforming other UK equity managers by following the principles of a legendary stock picker, Warren Buffett. By applying a fundamental stock picking approach, the manager invests in a concentrated portfolio of undervalued quality UK companies across all market sizes. He's looking for strong operating franchises, high returns on equity, strong free cash flow and experienced management teams with no need uh, for macro considerations and unconstrained by any specific benchmark. Ashworth Lord believes in investing for the long term, but ideally forever as his process is designed to find companies that will stand the test of time and continue to grow at a steady rate. So what does the fund invest in? Currently, the fund is well diversified in terms of sectors with a portfolio of comprising of 31 stocks spread across the market cap spectrum. The manager is biased towards the small cap space where he finds the most opportunities. Usually, no single holding has more than 10% went in the portfolio, where currently the top three holdings are the manufacturer of miniature war games, Games Workshop, Land Trust Asset Management, and the London Stock Exchange Group. The manager prefers companies that are usually not correlated with sectors and the fund avoids banks, energy, mining, and blue sky pharmaceuticals. The portfolio is also well diversified in terms of underlying earnings exposure, where significant parts uh, come not just from the UK, but also from Europe, uh, the US and Asia Pacific. What makes it special in your view? I think commitment to unique investment methodology has proved very successful for the manager and the fund has seen its assets grow rapidly, reaching roughly 1.3 billion as at the end of May from just 42 million in mid-2016. Um, the fund's investment process definitely makes it stand out from the competition. Although uh, the strategy is based on Buffett's methodology, the manager uses proprietary analysis as part of his overall approach. He follows a strict discipline for finding opportunities and understands the importance of patience in order to buy uh, at the right price. And all this leads uh, to an incredible short and long-term performance. Over five years, the fund returned over 82%, while the AI UK company sector returned just below 6%. The quality selection process proved to be efficient and stood the recent market sell up extremely well. And over three months, the fund lost just half a percent compared to minus 7.3% for the AI sector. Impressive. Uh, what sort of investors will it particularly suit? I think this fund would be suitable to complement a core UK equity or company's fund or a tracker. Its high portfolio concentration and bias towards smaller companies makes it, of course, a high-risk option, which could be best utilised as a satellite holding in a well-diversified portfolio. The fund does not have initial charges and its ongoing fee is uh, 1.19%. However, this is likely to change when we see the fund's assets growing. Thank you very much, Theo, and to Mike Fox for joining us today. That's all for this week, but we'll see you again in a fortnight. Thanks for listening.